Welcome to another episode of Decoded Season 3. We are exploring developer education. And specifically in this episode, we are looking at how mobile applications are made on the financial tech level, specifically a very large bank. I think we come across banking needs on a daily basis, and it is just a part of the fabric of society. Banking, finance is so critical, and that's one of the reasons why I deeply, deeply enjoy working with financial technology. If you yourself is also a fan, we also have another episode in season two where I had a conversation with the software engineer at Stripe, and she explains as to how Stripe was created and how they tackle uh, their toolings and their builds. But with this specific episode, I'm so excited to introduce Tim Mitra. And before I do that, I do want to give a quick notice. If you are a dev and you want to be learning more and having access to education. We do have an upcoming conference, a developer conference in November. It's the OutSystems Developer Conference or OSDC. Registration is free. Feel free to sign up. We have 50 technical talks from speakers across 150 countries. So I am super excited. And I think that this is going to be a really, really great way to just nurture the education. May it be technical documentations, podcasts, the conference itself. I will be there. Feel free to say hello. And let's dive right into this conversation with Tim Mitra. Because I know a little bit about your background. You were an artist, a theater kid, and then you had a very long journey into development. And, and when you were first touching Photoshop, did you know that you were going to become a software engineer? No, actually, you know, I graduated in 1984, right? And that was like when the Mac literally came out, right? Like I graduated the same, pretty much the same month that sort of hit the streets. And so, I mean, I'd seen Apple computers at university and, and I knew high school friends who did the whole shoebox full of punch cards kind of programming, right? And so I hadn't, it was not on my radar at all, but but I was intending to be an engineer. I mean, that was my father's path for me was to go into mechanical engineering, or actually he switched me to electrical engineering because he said computers are the future. And at the last minute, I mean, I was accepted into a couple of really good schools here in Canada. And uh, last minute, my friend said to me, you know, you're a really good artist. You should pursue that. And like a fool, I changed my major just before I started school. So... And so I went into traditional hand-drawn sculpture painting. And then I got a, when I got out of university and I found out you can't get work, any work or make any money, I became a commercial artist. And so it's through that process. And at that time, you know, the whole buzzwords were CAD CAM. And I was in manufacturing, making flags and banners, actually, and using Illustrator to do the artwork and Photoshop when it first came out and th a program called Digital Darkroom, if people remember that one. And you're trying out all these different things. And I was asked for the company to go and find a computer system that would do the work that we were doing, manual work that we were doing. We were drawing large scale drawings by hand kind of thing. And, and it was a labor intensive purpose. And what we were doing was repeatable. So it made sense that we start using computers to do that. And fortunately for me, knock on wood, the first system I saw was a Mac, right? running Illustrator, because I did go and look at some PCs as well as part in that evaluation, and they just didn't quite have that same polish and finish, and like the lines didn't actually meet each other kind of thing when you drew stuff, right? 
So, and I, and to me, that was not acceptable. And, but so I think probably within about three or four months of having a computer at my desk every day working on it, I started to think to myself, what can I do more with this? I wanted to find out what, how I could, you know, break the mold and not just, I was never satisfied with just using the apps the way they were designed. So that started the genesis. And I've always been sort of creative outside the box thinker and so to me, using the Mac and the computer became a tool. Like I could see, I saw it as a, just another knife or paintbrush or whatever. So that started me on the journey towards development and, and things like we had production schedules and nobody knew how to use a spreadsheet. So I figured I just started using a spreadsheet. And then the company said to me, why don't we use this as our standard for meetings? And we'll just, every meeting you bring your spreadsheet and we'll discuss the work that's being done. And that's kind of how that started. And then as I learned more about computing, I learned a bit about automation. I've seen HyperCard. I played around with early, early tools like FileMaker Pro and things like that. I was in a Mac user group with a bunch of people in the neighborhood. And so they were all doing businessy stuff with their computers. I was doing art, right? That kind of started it. And then one day, a friend of mine had told me about PHP and MySQL, and, and I kind of sort of looked at it and played around with it. And one day somebody was walking through the office with a piece of paper and a pen. And I said, what are you doing? He says, I'm doing a hockey pool. I said, oh, why don't you do that on a computer? He's like, what's a computer? <laughs> Pretty much, right? And so the next thing I know, I'm running the hockey pool, right? And I'm using FileMaker Pro to do it. And my boss has said to me, well, we're all on PC and you're on Mac. How can we check the stats daily? Like we have to wait for you to send us a note when you've updated the stats. And so then I thought, well, why don't I look into PHP and make an online version of this hockey pool? And I actually ended up creating an app, fully blown app, and it was used across the country for hockey pools by various people. And I would scrape the data off of Yahoo Sports and, and update it in the morning through a script, because at the time we were using SGI computers as well. So that's when I became a developer, was, when, was through a need to sort of get this information in front of a bunch of eyeballs and, and do it in a platform agnostic way, right? So it's funny because, you know, I, I was good at math and science and I was good at art and I wanted to be an engineer. And the, the irony for me is now I am an engineer having come, taken the long route, right? But I think what fits with me with Apple in general is that because I come from that intersection of art and technology that Steve Jobs talked about, that's my wheelhouse, right? So I'm not just a coder. I'm not. In fact, my other podcast is called More Than Just Code because there is more than just writing code to building in mobile apps, right? So, or any websites and whatever, right? Absolutely. And I think that you need to have some sort of design or vision of what kind of technology you're building for or towards. Otherwise, if it's not properly designed, you can't properly engineer it. And you really mentioned this transition where you went from a consumer and then of art into a visionary of art into a implementer of art, AKA you wanted to become a builder. You wanted to become an engineer and bring this, bring this into fruition. And, and as you started to use these tools that were originally for design, you actually started to shift and use that tool that's originally for design you almost kind of use it as a developer tool or a gateway drug to other developer tools. Well, I mean, I always maintain, there's a couple of things about that is one is I've always maintained that development or creating of an app is the same brain science that goes into building something is the same creative stuff that goes into making a painting or an art. And 
And for me, the computer is just an, it's a digital paintbrush. It's a digital scalpel. It's a digital chisel. I even use, do 3D art and I, and I have a 3D printer over my shoulder here and, and I make my own toys now, you know, kind of thing. Like I fixed my broken Roomba by printing a gear in 3D and I, I've fixed Ikea furniture for my wife who wants to customize things by printing a piece to make it work. We have window air conditioners here and I, we have special kind of windows and I had to make braces. So I made the braces on a 3D printer using a tool called Tinkercad. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It only runs on Google Chrome, but it's like a 3D rendering tool. You can create 3D objects and you can export them to object files and output them on your 3D printer. So, I mean, I do that all the time, right? To me, it's just another paintbrush. It's another tool, right? Yeah. So you've really taken yourself as not just a consumer of tech, but also a creator of tech, right? And when it comes to being an, an engineer for so many years, decades, like you said, you've seen the literal birth in 1984 of the Mac computer as arguably a consumer product. Maybe it was still really not accessible to the mainstream consumer base, both either technologically, education-wise, or financially. But I think one thing that I'm really, really curious about your work in is the years and the time that you've spent creating mobile applications for an international bank and, and really what is to come in finance. I think even from the 80s to the 90s to you know current present day, you have seen as a consumer banking, you've also seen it transform. And now that banking for depending on the demographic, depending on where you're coming from, now a lot of banking and the importance of financial access is all consumed via mobile as well. So as you have been a consumer and now a builder of what I personally find quite interesting, which is a industry that is very critical, the financial institution, and also a technical challenge. I'd love to just hear an overall perspective of how you saw the shift anywhere from being a consumer yourself to being a builder yourself in a very critical industry. Yeah, it's interesting. Like the last place I would have thought I'd be working at any point in my life would be a bank, right? To be honest with you. I mean, let's go back to one of the things you said earlier. It's, it's funny because when I was using Macs, there was a stigma in my office because Macs were toys, right? And I was doing creative artsy fartsy stuff with my, and they had the IBM 36 baby mainframes and, and they were doing serious work and I was just playing around and they eventually got into the, the compacts and all that kind of stuff too. But, and in terms of evolution, yeah, I wasn't quite there at the dawn of computing or whatever. Like, I mean, but I have, I've been around a long time to see what's gone on. I, I have a whole box full of floppy disks behind me and I have, I've used tapes and I've used SideQuest drives and I've used all the sort of things. And now we're, everything's up in the iCloud, right? So I've seen that evolution, but by the same token, I've also seen the bank evolve because when I was young, when I was a young kid, my dad made us go to the bank and I opened up a bank account at Canada Trust when he was a Bank of Montreal guy. And so Canada Trust was a small indie sort of startup bank that started in the 70s. And I remember opening my first Canada Trust account. Also, when I first got to university, I got this thing called a student loan. And I'm like, okay, well, this is great. But back in the day, it was like, you know, you went to the bank Monday to Friday from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. That's where the whole term banker, banker's hours come from, right? Is that you can only go into the bank. And I love the Louis C.K. joke, you know, so it was when you ran out of money, that was all you could do. You had no more money. 
you had to go to the bank and you had to write this piece of paper and ask the bank manager to give you the money to buy the thing that you wanted to buy. And if you couldn't get to the bank at three, sorry, you just went home and sat and waited till 10 tomorrow, wow. right? So no weekend drinking maybe. Yeah, that was how banking worked back then. And very few people had credit cards and stuff like that. There was no debit concept of a debit card either, right? So, but when I got to university, I had this thing called a student loan and there happened at York University where I went to school, the TD Bank had just installed a bank machine. And I'm like, oh man, I can go to the bank at 11 o'clock at night. And so I can stick this little plastic debit card in and I can do my banking. As long as I can get into the building, I can, I can do banking. So that was cool for me, you know. And then ironically, TD Bank and Canada Trust, they merged together at one point. And so I ended up being a TD customer after, after a long time. And it's funny because I have a really old bank account. In fact, my branch has moved and it's closed. And so I become an edge case at, at work because my bank because my branch doesn't exist anymore, it breaks a lot of the stuff that we write. So I end up being the tester for a lot of scenarios where they edge cases that they hadn't worked on. It's kind of kind of funny. I think it's funny that way. But again, I would never have worked at a bank if I didn't have a Mac in front of me. And fortunately, because I write iOS and because it only runs on X, Xcode, only runs on a Mac, I have a Mac in front of me and it's, you know, it's managed by TD and all that kind of stuff. I also did a whole career of managed services and computers. So I have a whole ba Mac background as well, right? That was another path in my career that I took. And so the, I used a lot of those things in my tool belt, if I can use that expression to, because I have a deep understanding of Mac and how it works, right? And now we're at the point where when I started at the bank five years ago, I was around when, wasn't at the bank, but I was around when they started doing mobile banking. And the, I remember I joke because I because I'm a developer I don't trust other developers so I was always leery about using the banking app <laughs> but I remember when it was like a branch it would do I think the first iteration of the bank it, I think it might have let you look at your balance but I'm pretty sure it was just like a branch location thing that's where early banking started bank apps right and I think about almost I guess eight years ago they started a full-on development towards being able to look at your balance and to be able to pay bills and to transfer money from one account to another and manage your credit card and stuff like that, right? And that's sort of that was before I started. But when I joined them, the web banking was still the thing. Like it was still the bigger part of the market. And over the last five years, we've slowly looked at our, you know, every quarter we'll have like an all hands meeting and they'll give us the numbers and talk about it. And now a large percentage, something like 60% or something like that, don't quote me on that, but 60% of the, of the banking we do is people using online apps, like using either mobile or an Android app, right? So it's seen it evolve from a paper passbook that you stuck into a machine to get it print to print the balance. I think when, actually when I think I, yeah, when that first bank machine opened up in 1979 at the university, you had to put your pass in to print your statement, you know? You have to physically put the book in. I mean, I have to double check, but I think we might be different generations. I do you have... Think, I'm pretty sure we are. <laughs> I do have faint memories of paper checks. And one thing I I definitely align with you on is um, back, back, back in the day when I first started my career in 2013, I had worked at Wells Fargo, specifically also Wells Fargo Labs. And I was on the front end team that was looking to introduce users of the mobile app to be able to apply for a mortgage or some sort of loan. And even, even that one little feature was just so difficult. Anywhere from, does this make sense for users? All the way to the engineering team of how do we surface, how do we surface this, right? And, and I think when I started to surface a lot of these technical challenges, 
I, I started to look at how maybe startups or even early nascent teams are building this, how were fintech companies, neobanks, I mean, we've gone through so many transitional titles, if you want to call it that. But I think from your perspective, what do you think from just in terms of non-native fintech or non-native neobanks or just traditional banks and as they are migrating into tech first or mobile first or et cetera, what do you think are some of the challenges that they face just from your experience as being a, a lead developer on an international bank? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a different thing. Like I think there's also a difference, not just in our generation, but also our countries because I'm in Canada and we have four major banks, five arguably, that are sort of the cornerstones are literally the corner of King and Bay there was on each corner is one of the four major banks of Canada, right? And I used to joke that all the money in Canada goes through that intersection. Oh my gosh. And ironically, that's where I work now, right? Okay. So, but I mean, you know, and I know it's sort of a, the U.S., don't take offense by this, but it seems to be a real sort of wild west in terms of like, you know, there's all kind like Wells Fargo, for instance, literally Wells was wild west, right? Yeah, well, li- yes, I mean, literally, yes. <laughs> and the post office was literally traveling across the country in a, on a horse, right? But the banking is different, quite different in Canada and U.S., I think, too. But that said, I mean, we're still... We're still very conservative. And, and I think one of the things you kind of touched on a bit, and maybe we should explain it to people, is the difference between a bank app and a regular app, right? Like a regular, you can iterate and you can, Facebook can, you know, output a, an update oh. almost every day. Wow, right? wow, really good point. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, is that because of the whole risk part, there's a lot of stakeholders in any single feature that we put into an app, right? And we get beat up by our customers in the app reviews because why is it taking so long to put Touch ID in. Why do I have to go to a bank to open this particular type of account, right? And the reality is because I like to say we're protecting you from yourself. (laughs) And one of the things we tell our junior developers a lot is if you think about it, if you write a feature incorrectly or if we release something incorrectly, you can ruin somebody's life by not making a rent check go through, right? Like, you know, if you think about that, like right now everybody's going through the pandemic times and, you know, we're all worried about what landlords are going to do to people. But the reality is, is that if somebody's check bounces, they're on the street, literally, you know. In fact, one of the women we work with at TD, I'm just trying to remember her name, but I think she goes by GM or something like that. But she, or CJ, CG, she runs a group for homeless people who have, and the the reality is, is that 60% of homeless people have a mobile phone. And the reason why, it's not that they're homeless and, you know, they're on the edges of society. They're homeless because their rent didn't go through or they lost a job or there's some financial tragedy that they had. But there's still, there could be you or me tomorrow, right? And that's the reality of homeless. And, and one of, we, TD does a lot of, I think most of the banks here do a lot of, what do you call it, philanthropic work, right? And what, so that's one of the groups we work with is, is working with her and the kind of stuff that she does, Right. One of my sort of ideas for an app is to have a way for homeless people to have a barcode or a QR code or something that rather than having a paper coffee cup where you put a quarter in, you can just swipe a QR code and give them 25 cents or 50 cents or a dollar, you know. But then, you know, they don't have addresses. They don't have like, again, it's mitigating risk, right? They don't have a street address. They don't have a home address. But but there must be some way as society to help people get a leg up, right? I'm famous for tangents, by the way. No, I'm, I'm a fan. I'm a fan. We can continue. But what I'm hearing is that 
even from your perspective as an engineer, when you are able to make something that scales for, I can't even imagine how many users are using TD, but all the way down to how- Millions. Millions, right? And how do you create an application even to the granular that is serving a specific population where you can enable microtransactions directly, maybe even peer to peer. And kind of to bring us back, what I've heard so far is that some of the challenges that big banking institutions face, especially as they are migrating into technology, is they have to roll out their tech releases in tranches. It has to be released considering the least amount of risk possible. So the feature right. time And the lowest common denominator right. too, right? So we have to accommodate, I don't mean to bash developers, but you get a lot of the, you know, well, they should just update their phone. They should just use the newest OS. You know, we want to use the new shiny features that Apple and Google have given us, right? But the reality is you've got, I'm just going to be a generalist here and say, and no offense to people, but you could be like, maybe you're 60 and you're, or, or 65 or 85 and you're living on a pension and you don't have money to run out and buy a $1,500 iPhone, right? So you're still rocking an iPhone 6 or you're still running and, and you can't update to iOS 13 or 14 or 15, right? So we have to serve that client too, right? And so we... Oh, that's a good point. That's what I mean by the lowest common denominator. Yeah, you yeah. have to be able to, you have to be able to support, we debate this all the time at work, like, you know, how do we accommodate all the shiny new stuff and yet still serve our client, which at the end of the day is the guy who's trying to buy milk or groceries or pay the rent, you know, their hydro bill, whatever, what, electrical bill, sorry, hydro is a Canadian expression. <laughs> and, and so oh, that's actually, I did not know that. I've just learned something. Yeah. We're water powered up here. So we say hydro. Oh, that's, right? that's awesome. Yeah. Well, so when I take a reflection at traditional if that's even the right term, but in terms of traditional banking mobile applications, I think one of the things that really stands out to me is that unlike, again, air quotes, like FinTech, like um, I'm trying to think of like mobile first Revel? Or, well, so I've, right. got, I've got some examples for you, yeah, right? Because yeah. I mean, I do look at these things too. I have a number of friends in the industry, obviously, and one of them is is over at a company called Well Simple. I don't know if you guys have heard of it down there, but they started as a startup here in Toronto and, and they... They started by having a tax-free savings account, stuff that you could do right on the app. And they now they've added well simple trade. And they you can do stock trades up to a certain level. You can do it for free, which is like unheard of in the industry, right? So because I think you use e-trade and stuff like that down in the States, right? Like these guys are reinventing the way that investments are done by by small people. And then there's also tech like in, in Africa. I listened to a show called Spark on CBC and they talk a lot about how things are done and some countries they went from like no phone service at all to cell phones and using a technology called m-pesa i don't know if you've heard of m-pesa where they can basically it's microtransactions, like you said and and then they have small company or small entrepreneurs who do micro loans to people which the big banks can't really again mitigating the risk they can't see themselves doing that whereas somebody needs fifty dollars for groceries they can get a small micro loan from somebody to help them get that leg up right do you think it's a scale issue a technological scale issue or is it a prioritization not in terms of values i just mean a prioritization in terms of what kind of tech releases that can serve the common denominator as you mentioned Right. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I can say, and I also don't know if I know that it is either way, because I'm not really involved in, in the decision making of what features go into Apple's, but I do get informed of what's coming, right, kind of thing. 
which is part of the what I can't say. <laughs> and and again, I should also say in case people decide to look it up, that I'm supposed to say that I'm just I'm proud to be a member, uh, an employee of the bank that I work for, but I'm not a spokesperson for the bank. So don't take anything I say as a guarantee of what, what's coming or what's what they're working on or what their philosophy is. I mean, so I mean that said, I mean I don't know that I think that. It takes uh, a different kind of mindset to come up with something that shakes up the industry. Like, you know, this whole Bitcoin thing. We're aware of blockchain. We're aware of the sort of digital federated ledger that blockchain promises, right? As a bank, I mean. But the people who are building, who are mining coin, and like Coinbase is, is an app that I've seen grow up over time. I invested a few dollars in Coinbase just to see what would happen with it. And it's, I've watched the Bitcoin go up and down, and it's sort of a new type of finance that's different than traditional finance. I mean, if you go on TED Talks, you can see how money works, right? You can see that the US dollar is based on, on the amount of gold that they have, right? The gold standard is because gold is so hard to find, there's only so much, there's a finite amount of it on Earth that they can use that as, as a thing. And then you get governments, that, politicians and, and governments that inflate or deflate the dollar based on the monies that people need at any point in time. I mean, this is a particularly bad time for everybody with, with the whole pandemic thing. You know, the governments are all like just constantly throwing money at a problem to get us through this, right? Because <laughs> yeah. it affects everybody. And it's going to be years and years are going to hear, mark my words, kids right now, you're going to hear about this spending they did on this pandemic in 2020 and 2021 for, you're going to hear about this for the next 10 years. It's going to be like a 2008. Gonna be, Brad Pitt's yep. going to make a movie about how bad it I was. I don't know and, you if know, Brad like, Pitt's going to be. Gonna, is, he, is he pretty, <laughs> pretty old? We'll see. I mean, maybe his well, like. Okay. Sorry. I, I should pick a younger, I should pick a younger star. That's, I that's say okay. That's the only Pitt. celebrity that I know that's not in tech. Yeah. What I mean is like, you know, because there's the whole crisis, financial crisis we had in in 2008, you know, the, the mortgage thing, right? With the city um, default swamps. I forget. Yeah. Is that what it was? I yeah. Think it was, and yeah. and uh, yeah, there was a bunch of movies that, have, that came out with Christian Bale and they're all getting angry and yelling and pounding their fists on tables. And you've got like Aaron Brockovich type, you know, people, not that Aaron Brockovich did this, but we've got those kind of movies that come out after, after the dust is settled. You have all these sort of movies that come out and talk about how, how bad the idea was. But I think as we live through the pandemic today, right? And we're just coming to the end of it, thankfully, it seems, right? It's easy for us to get critical about the spending that's been done. But if, again, coming back to those people who needed to pay their mortgage, if our governments hadn't helped these people, where would we be, right? So. And what you're reminding me of is that this is almost like, what is the second chance? What is the redemption? If from your experience building mobile applications on the banking level, what do you think are some things that you've learned that should really take into consideration? How would you rebuild a banking infrastructure? May it be for a neobank or even a traditional bank? What do you think are some of those big aha moments from a technological side that you think is actually quite critical for a lot of backend infrastructure? Yeah. I mean, and I've built a lot of different apps. I've built fun apps. I've built game apps. I've built before I joined the bank, right? And I still have a few of my apps that I play around with myself and publish and stuff like that. And I built social networking apps in the past where you, you worry about people's passwords and usernames and trying not to get them, make it proof that they're not hackable. But you, if you look at what changed for me coming to the bank was at first it seems like really slow, right? Slow development. I mean, then that's because I work in a traditional bank, right? But 
But having been here and seen the kind of decisions that had to get made and how far reaching an impact it has, I can see why the development is, I'm doing air quotes, slow, because slower than you would at a startup. I think when you have less at stake, you can take more risk, right? Pardon me for saying risk 27 times. We had a risk management course this morning, so it's fresh in my mind. I don't normally talk about risk this much, but, but that's the reality is we're constantly challenged with making sure that we, each step we take, right, is signed off by 20 people. It's not, I mean, I'm making that number up, but it's like, it feels like that because we use an agile process as well. So we're, the senior developers are mitigating the risk right from how we design the application, how we design the application flow of a feature, right? All the way down to all kinds of quality assurance. We call it quality engineering at work, right? So our QE are testing and testing and testing. And they do the craziest things with our app. Like, you know, they'll, They'll start something on the phone and then they'll put the phone down for 10 or 15 minutes and come back and then try and continue the process. I mean, who does that, right, as a test? But the reality is you're sitting on the subway, you're, you decide you're standing on the platform, you want to start a transaction, right? Your train comes, you get on the train, you go in the tunnel, you lose your signal. Always, all or the you, time. Or your mom calls from the, from the East Coast and says, how are you doing, Sydney, right? And the next thing you know, oh, yeah, yeah, I was trying to do that transfer. And you go back to your app, right? So QE does these kind of, like these invented scenarios that, that replicate what a human being does with a banking wow, app. Wow, wow. You know, and I always think like I always joke with them for breaking our app, but the reality is they do all these crazy things, these edge casey kind of tests, because as developers, we think, oh, it's an if statement. We just go in here, we if this, then that, and also that, and we kind of make our little conditional loop and we go home at the end of the day. And then QE goes in and adds a two hour wait to the if loop, you know? You're building for a ideal scenario, but... Yeah, happy path. Right, right, right. The happy path. And what ends up happening is that consumers are not always developers and developers are typically... They don't understand how to use our app. That's our problem with them, right? Yeah. (laughs) I'm being being facetious, right? But But the thing (laughs) is, I think that like with traditional banking apps that services, I mean, millions, multi-millions, right? Internationally, domestically, I really see them as very much utilitarian or very much tools. Like these are critical tools and it depends. There are other fintech kind of just air quotes, fun, fintech consumery applications that are definitely not mission critical. It's fun. Maybe, I don't know, whatever wallet and you get a, a few fun tokens because you clicked on an ad, like that's great and dandy, but you're not trying to pay your, your rent as you mentioned. And, and this goes back to something that you've been highlighting again and again, which is the stakes that you have to consider as a developer is very, very different. And I can only, I can only say, yes, Tim, I completely agree with you. I mean, there's one thing if you are, let's just say you are making an app for memes or maybe a dating app. I mean, that you know, there's obviously security issues with that. However, if you are creating a mobile application where your customer can lose millions of dollars or or even a thousand, even $200 scale is all relevant, that can be very, very devastating. And so when you go through the security and and the QA of that, what do you think some of these fintech companies are forgetting about? And, And something that you've learned building in your own terms, your experience building at the scale and the risk profile that you do, what are some things that you'd want to tell other developers like, hey, you're at this neobank, you're at this fintech, you're at Revolut, I don't know what it is, but 
hey, these are some of the things to consider because maybe you've forgotten it or, or haven't even considered it. And you only really come across this while you're building natively in a traditional banking tech application. Yeah, I don't know. I, again, I don't know that they're not thinking about that, the young sort of fintech-y, startup-y kind of people. I mean, I hope they are. And I wouldn't want to gamble on a feature and gamble with people's livelihoods, right? Like that's, I think that's the takeaway, right? I definitely do think there's a place for that kind of thing, though. I mean, like, I think we need to have the fintechs and, you know, Mint and Wellsimple and Coinbase. We need them to sort of push the envelope. I mean, like, if you look at Uber and, and Lyft and what they've done for the whole hired car taxi industry, like they've, my friend Jaime likes to say disrupted. It's his least favorite word, but that's, you know, we say that they disrupted that whole industry, right? And taxi drivers around the world are up in arms because their model was so stuck in the mud that they didn't move beyond. They've been doing the same thing forever. And and mobile devices came along and now you can see where the cab driver is. Now you can order your food and you can watch the car go on the map and deliver it to your house kind of thing. I mean, that's that's amazing. I remember, I, it's funny, let's go back to a BlackBerry story I had because I'm Canadian, so we had Blackberries back Yay, in the day. Yay, BlackBerry. I was, I was walking down the street one day with my wife and this is like... Probably just before the iPhone had been introduced, but I'm walking down the street and I'm looking at my BlackBerry and I'm like, man, this website is so crappy. It's, you know, it was a WAP thing or I forget what they called it, right? But it was like, you know, you couldn't find things. And it was like, she's, she looked at me, she said, you're walking down the street and you're on the internet. I'm the guy that had to put my paper, you know, pa you know passbook into to get the update on my statement, right? Like it's, it's all about, you know, like the reality is, is this is amazing what you're doing right now, you know? And I think that's cool too, is that like, you know, the, like I said, I've been watching my friend's app, Wellsimple, evolve over the last few years, right? Like, you know, as soon as he put it up on beta, I joined and signed up and got an account and I have some money in there and I, I put it in there and play around with it and just, you know, like a few shekels here, nothing major, but like they just came up with the Wellsimple cash card, right? Which, so yeah, sure. I signed up for that. And, you know, if I, anybody I invite gets $25 and, you know, so on. And it's like, Hook oh, me cool, up. free money, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. I mean, that's how Dropbox started too, yep, right? Dropbox, yep. they gave you like a half a gigabyte and you added more people and you got more gigabytes. And, oh, you know. Dropbox. That was my, that was my freshman year of college. It was so, uh, yeah, actually, no, I think Dropbox came out 2011, 10, 12, something like that. But I was definitely yeah. on the Hotmail train and then, the, <laughs> yeah, and then the Gmail train. But, but I think to your point, right, the plus one for what your wife said is that this is what we call at Burning Man radical amazement and just being so amazed that this exists, even, even to the extent of, again, when you and I both looked at paper checks while well, I was like, I don't know how old I was, but I had no idea that this, yeah, oh, you have it in person. I don't, I, <laughs> now I'm confused why you physically have a paper check with you, but that's well, amazing. <laughs> yeah. For those of you at home, I'm, I'm holding a paper check to my camera, but it just so happens that we do mobile deposit in our app, right? So occasionally I have to write a check and to put in, and I also have a small business and believe it or not, I still get a couple of customers who send me checks, paper checks. What? But here's something that our bank did, and I know that many other Canadian banks did this too, so I don't want to claim you know, superiority here, but first thing they did when COVID came along was, okay, we need to get these services into the apps as soon as possible 
so that people don't have to risk their lives to go to a bank machine or go to a bank, right? So we put the mobile deposit, we made it available to businesses as well, like as quickly as we could. I mean, and we did it carefully. It's not like we rushed it out to market or whatever, but and we did it as the whole, we had a whole sort of task force that kind of put their heads together and said, how can we make it safe for people to do banking? And this is back in, in March of last year, right? To try and get... So kudos to them for doing that. But yeah, occasionally I have to test, you know, checks. So I, I wrote myself a $5 check. That's what that was. Your dog fooding you know, and, and yeah. Well, deposit from, yeah, dog fooding. You go from one deposit into a second account. And that way I can test the feature and that kind of stuff. And we do the same thing. Our QA does the same thing. They have check tech, check images and stuff that they they test scenarios with like that. But yeah. Yeah. No, and I think, and I think this absolutely highlights your point that you are not, air quotes, just building an app or a mobile application, you are you are serving a population that at certain times may really, really need this feature or you have a crisis or you need whatever it is, you are responsible, not, not responsible, you are the gateway for some to be able to access finances because like finances is just, it touches on everyone's lives. Everyone needs to be able to access it and you as an engineer, you have to consider how do we not just improve the lives, but provide access for these folks that it affects the lives. And, you know, I really just to applaud the banks, a lot of these banks that have done this. I mean, even a huge shout out for U.S. Bank Philippines. Philippines, a lot of their GDP is dependent on remittances, right? It can be money, income, et cetera, from abroad, locally, et cetera. And I was really, I was really happy to see that some of the teams at Al Systems was able to work with US Bank Philippines and roll out very quickly an ability to have a dashboard, a application to be able to submit and retrieve admittances for a GDP, a country, a financial landscape that really, really needs that. And so this is a long-winded way of saying, I completely agree with you that when you are a developer at a bank or even at the scale, you are then thinking about how do you provide for a huge audience? How do you also service them? And then at the very least, how do you mitigate risks for everyone as well? It's There's a huge responsibility and it sounds like it even trickles down to you as, as an engineer because as I also enjoy making fun apps, silly things, you know, if you if the color is wrong or the, the button doesn't work, you just... Yeah, you'll look at it next weekend. You just you, you go play video games. You won't think it, it doesn't really make that much of a difference on the kind of like the ideation or fun level. But yeah. But there's even risk in like, you know, it's funny. We talked again, we had this course training today and we talked about like an agile pod and how everybody in the pod is a risk manager because not because I work in a bank, but because anytime somebody comes to you with a new feature that they want to put into the app and you're starting to write the user stories and stuff like that and you're figuring out the application flow you have to sort of evaluate, okay, so am I going to do something that's going to crash somebody's phone or am I going to do something? Is is this feature that they were being asked to put in here, what are their inherent risks in doing that? Not like about paying rents or whatever, but I mean, like, like we just don't want the bad review, for example, would be one thing, right? Or we don't want the song to not play when the person hits play on their, on their MP3 player or whatever, right? So, or, you know, you don't want to disappoint the kid who's happy playing your game and all of a sudden, boom, the... 
they can't pick up the to the toy or the coin or whatever it is. That, you know, the Mario can't pick up the coins. You know, that imagine how frustrating that is. And so when you're writing user stories as an engineer, you're still looking at what are the the challenges, what are the dependencies we have to think about, what are all the ramifications that go into any particular feature or user story as you work, right? So yeah. And it's more than just banking. It's every, like, even if you're running a fun game, you know? Oh, that's like a very good point. And I think uh, what I really appreciate is that you are not just using what are the dependencies in terms of just tickets itself or the features itself, but bring it up a level of abstraction into what are the dependencies for just the users, the use case, the folks that you're trying to try in a service. And, and you kind of touched upon this a little bit earlier, was that you also see this I don't know if extreme is the right word, but a very almost quick jolt or entry of products. And I don't even know if you want to call them fintech companies anymore, but the Coinbase's, MetaMask, decentralized wallets, decentralized finance, DeFi projects, whatever, whatever it is, peer-to-peer -peer lending. I mean, you name it. I think that with this very fast relatively fast in, in terms of the just the development of technology in the past 20 to 30. 40, 50 years. Last five years, never mind. Right, right, 20, right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, good point. Thanks for keeping me on track. The last yeah. five years has been nuts. The last five years has been nuts, even from just banks moving into mobile banking and then being, I guess, mobile native or fine, like just a huge shakeup. Where, where am I going with this? I guess my point that I'm trying to, or the, the question I'm really trying to ask is, I'd love to hear your perspective and just kind of the rise, like even beyond neobanks, right? Or fintech companies. You have some traditional banks that try to dabble. I, Goldman uh, try and was like, yeah, no, Morgan, <laughs> you know, Morgan Stanley. And then, and then, gosh, you see where I'm going with this. Yeah. Yeah. And again, like I think, yeah, it's funny because like I was going to say this earlier, but you always think of banking as, you didn't quite say it, but we have a different political system up here. So we have conservatives and we have liberals, right? And I think, I think you can probably translate those into your two parties, if you know what I'm saying. But so banking, because of the whole security thing, has to be conservative, has to take a conservative stance, right? Because you, again, it comes back to, you know, we're entrusted with your dollars, right? You're taking, you're not, you're not putting your money in under the mattress, like the old thing back in the thirties and forties. You're, you're giving us your money. Sometimes you want it to grow if you're investing it like in a mutual fund or something like that. I'm trying to translate it from Canadian to American because, you know, we have, we have different financial vehicles as we call them here that are different than what you guys have. Like we have a thing called TFSA, which is a tax-free savings account that you can put five grand into every year and... Yeah, and then the government doesn't come looking for interest money. Like, <laughs> I right? think that's so, our, our version yeah. of the Roth or something, or IRAs or... Yeah, I don't yeah. know. And you have the 401k and I'm, I don't know the what squiggly that means, dues <laughs> and... Yeah. yeah, yeah. We have RSPs, you have 401ks. Yeah, it's, it's, you know... Do you think there's going to be a difficult transition for traditional banking to adopt maybe more decentralized type banking backends, maybe if it's different protocols... You know, I don't know. I mean, like, but I think that I do, again, I, I see behind the curtain a little bit at the bank where I work. So, you know, which I can't talk about too much, but I do see them evolving. I mean, like, like I said, we talked about blockchain three, four years ago, I think three years, four years ago. I think we, at first, the first time I heard somebody other than me at the bank say blockchain in a sentence, right? So these are things that we're thinking about, but I want to go back to like, you know, sort of like how, how things get stood up, as we say as well. 
is like I'm thinking back to that bank machine back in like 1979, right? And before that, they actually had a thing called Johnny Cash, which was a, a bank machine. And they actually had Johnny Cash himself oh my God. come and do the commercials, oh right? My yeah. God. And it was like literally you go to this machine and you put your card in and you get cash. You know, it's kind of, but if you think about how did they set that up initially? So they're going to put a machine in front of a bank that you can access. And I think initially when they first put these things in, there was no security door. There was no door you had to buzz in. I don't know if they do that in the States, but I mind you, I've been in the States and some of the, some of the bank machines are right on the street, (laughs) you know, and you know, there's the whole scam about putting card readers in front and whatever. But, but the thing about it, if you think about it, like they had to be able to take, the risk is they had to take, let's say, I don't know, $50,000, put it in this box, put it on the street Right. And then hope that people would come and use the interface to get this. I mean, how many bank machines were smashed into by cars and stolen? And, and, you know, we have guys in armored cars with guns on their hip, which doesn't happen much in Canada, but it does with these guys (laughs) who go and put the money in the machines and take the deposits out. And you know what I mean? Like, like they had to think about how do we move this from a traditional bank counter where you have, you know, a teller and a safe in the back with a big giant door on it, like you see in the movies. How do we go from that to like having money that we can just put on the side of the street and you just put a little plastic disc in to retrieve it, right? And how do we know it's really Sydney and not Tim trying to scam the money, right? So I think that's the same sort of thought process that goes into what what people are doing today with mobile apps and mobile banking is it's the same sort of things that considerations have to think about is like, how do we protect Sydney with her money in our digital bank How do we protect her from some guy in a foreign country hacking his way in and pretending to be her to get her money? There's insurance, obviously, but I mean, how do they, these, a lot of these sort of things that they have to think about in in designing banking, it's not just create a, you know, Mongo database and put a ledger in there, right? (laughs) You know, there's a lot to it, right? It's beyond just the, the Mongo database option. And yeah, and I think overall it's, What I've really enjoyed so far is just hearing your perspective of not just the transition of technology, but also how do you empower people to embrace that change? That's been really, really incredible. So Tim, I really appreciate you taking the time. And at the very least, I really want to just, you have so much that you're working on. How can we support you? You Mm -hmm. have dope podcasts. That's (laughs) actually how I first heard about you was actually through Jaime. And also just a lot of the stuff that you've been building throughout the years. And then also just being a really dope dev, building technology that is on such a important industry as well. So yeah, one, love to support you. And I'd love to just share some resources for the audience to do so. Sure. I think, and also, I mean, like we scratched the surface on the whole Photoshop thing. I mean, I have a whole industry knowledge on print and publishing and how that evolved over from like using pencils and paper to digital art, right? Where we are today. I have an Apple pencil now on my, on my iPad in front of me. Yeah. So, I mean, as you mentioned, I do a couple of pod, I do three podcasts right now, actually. More Than Just Code is our, our regular podcast, which we talk about mobile development. Jaime and I and my, my stepson, Jonathan, who's a, a journalist, we do a podcast called Spockcast, where we, we follow the new Star Trek stuff that's coming up, but it's primarily a pop culture, sci-fi, anime, comic book show. We talk about 
the latest thing is the digital, all the digital channels, the Disney Pluses, the Apples, the Amazon Prime, you know, all that Netflix and that kind of stuff and, and how that's evolving and like how Black Widow just made like box office money this last weekend with their, with their premiere. We talk about that as well. And I also do another podcast with Tammy Coron called The Hero's Journey, which is about people writing about development for the Pragmatic Programmers uh, group, right? And I'm working on a new podcast idea that I'm going to probably, I'm going to doing my first episode next week where I'm going to be, I'm going to be talking to a couple who just recently won an Apple Design Award for their app. The husband was a developer and the wife came up with this fantastic idea and they, they put it together and, and produced it. So, and they won an award. So Apple Design Awards are not to be scoffed at, right? Absolutely not. They have a high standard for sure. Yeah, for sure. So that's what's coming. But I, I'm also uh, pretty active on Twitter. I, my, I will say on the podcast, my name is Timitra, T-I-M-M-I-T-R-A on the Twitter machine is where you'll find me. And uh, yeah, that's my, my call out. And yeah, I mean, I do more than just banking. I do a lot of apps as well. So yeah. I do tech writing also. I should forget to mention that. Keep forgetting. Oh, no, you are definitely also. a tech writer. That's also how I came across. Yeah. And so with that being said, I will absolutely drop those links and I cool. cannot wait to hear your upcoming podcast and huge shout out for New York City Anime Con. Come through, Tim. I will see you there. Hmm. I will see you there. Well, you got to come up to Fan Expo in Toronto then as well. I, I will. Huh? I will have to. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, Tim. Once we can cross the border, that is. Oh, right? I forgot about that. Well, then I guess we'll do it. We'll do it virtually. Yep, yeah, for sure. Tim, thank you so much for joining today. Well, thanks for having me. Take care. Wow, what a wrap up. One of the things that I love about software engineers is that oftentimes, I'd say oftentimes, fairly enough, I see that we have such a diverse palette of skills, interests, and I feel like there's always an overlap between artists slash engineer slash a multitude of being a creator. So not just creating startups or applications or integrations themselves, but also creating content as a great way to flow, a great way to flow and let that creative juice just be existing in this world. So if you want to create, hit me up, let me know. How can I best support you in whatever it is that you want to create? So. If you have any ideas of what you want to create, or if you say, hey, Sydney, I'd like to have help, feel free to reach me directly, or you're also welcome to join our developer community. We have about 400,000 developers sharing ideas, sharing skill sets, building both internal toolings as well as just really great projects. Let's just start with that. So I'll drop that in the link. It's going to be our systems developer community. Enjoy. Come and let's build together. Mm -hmm.